Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, along with Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky, and today we have with us as well, Chris Stewart, and we're talking about the recent publication of Pentagon data talking about the desire of the Pentagon to purchase a little over 1,000 LRSO, that's the long-range standoff cruise missiles. And, you know, the Air Force is looking to replace the, the uh, air launch cruise missile, which has been around for 40 years plus now. And so they're, they're looking to replace that. And LRSO is that replacement. And so they've now come out with a set of numbers and it will be a little over uh, a thousand. And this program is, of course, it's about a $13 billion program, which you know, for those folks who talk about the trillion-dollar triad, $13 billion is, you know, is not very much. It's a small percentage of that total modernization and operations expense. So with hey, Adam, that, Adam, yeah, Adam, as, Jim. as we're talking about expanding and making things even better, I want to highlight the fact that this is the first time our newest board member, Chris Stewart, our vice president for outreach, is it on our podcast and is ex- helping us to expand NIDS in a great way. And so I want to thank Chris. He's been on here before in a different vein at the time, but now he's one of us, a NIDS. And so welcome, Chris. And also, while I'm talking, I can't help for those that get to see our LinkedIn preview. I'm wearing our newest expansion to the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, the Global Security Review web uh, newsletter uh, uh, document archive, I guess we're calling it. I'm not sure what we're calling it anymore, except that it's wonderful. Pardon? Online Online journal. journal. All right. Well, thank you. I'm just the president. I don't know much. So anyway, the, our online journal, we're getting lots of hits on it. Go see it at global security review. And thank you, Adam Lowther for your tireless efforts in getting this relaunched back to you, Adam. Well, uh, hey, okay. Anyway, so before you go, <laughs> you, go got, ahead, you, you got to give me a minute to say thank you. <laughs> Just got to, yeah, well, thank you. Uh, it's great to be with you, Dr. James Petrosky, who I call Dr. J. I don't know if he likes that or not. Uh, yeah, but what cool. an honor to join you and, uh, and to be with you. And that's an awesome t-shirt. I wonder where I could get one too. Cause I'd wear that around. Well, you're not bad at hinting, are you, Chris? <laughs> I think he knows somebody. All right. Back to you, Adam. So if we're going to talk about LRSO today and about the Air Force or the DOD's purchase of about a thousand, a little, little more, for $13 billion, Curtis, could you, you know, give us a sort of a lay down of the utility of LRSO and is this a good decision, bad decision? What's your take? Well, Adam, thanks. Jim, always good to see you. And Chris, what a welcome addition. Thank you, sir, for being here and joining us. Uh, let me say this. Uh, so for our, our listeners who are still learning to find our Global Security Review 
uh, online journal. Uh, we have a little section on the top called the EAM, which is a nuclear uh, uh, emergency action message. And we post short little articles, what I call super tweets. And uh, recently uh, I posted one on this piece, on this article, uh, and uh, to try to get our, our, our readers and now our listeners, uh, you know, a little more information on what this is. So I encourage them to, to check it out. Uh, so let me jump on this real quick. So the LRSO is, first of all, it is, it is, let me, let me sum this up at the bottom line up front. It is super cheap. It enhances a tremendous amount of global stability, and it is a key enabler to our, 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 our air leg of the strategic triad. Without it, the, uh, the air leg of the strategic triad would be uh, greatly constrained in its ability to perform its mission um, and therefore be an efficacious leg of deterrence. So uh, with that, let me, let me sort of break it down just a little bit. So this program appears to be about 5% under budget. Who, who's heard that all before, <laughs> uh, according to these, uh, these pieces. Uh, so, uh, so it's going well. General Cotton, the commander of U.S. Stratcom, has, has praised this, uh, this um, uh, effort. He says that the, the program is on time. Uh, it seems to be going, uh, going very well. They've recently announced a number of, of uh, flight tests that have undergone, and the Air Force has deemed them to be all successful uh, as they are incrementally uh, expanding their test cycle. And, uh, and this capability, when it comes online, is really going to be able to enhance the reach of the venerable B-52, which is being modified to the J model with new engines and new avionics. And, uh, and of course, we'll, we'll actually be integrated with the, the new B-21, which will make that aircraft even more efficient and, and effective as not only uh, as, a, as a, if you will, point bomber, but also as a standoff capability. So these are all uh, are, are terrific attributes that add to the deterrence uh, uh, mindset. I'll also say here that these weapons are, if you will, they are they are treaty free. Um, they don't they don't count in the New Start Treaty any of these weapons, and nor do the air launch cruise missiles that they're replacing. So we're not having to worry about whether or not you know we're we're you know, sort of messing with our, our nuclear balance, because in the treaty, it is the bomber that is counted as one nuclear weapon. And this was done because of the, of the mindset that the bomber and the cruise missile are, are not, I'm going to use a double negative here, are not destabilizing. I think it's a double negative. And, and so essentially what they're saying is because these, you know, it's visible to watch a bomber get generated. It's, you know, it takes hours to fly a bomber towards its target. Uh, there's, they can be recalled that they are arguably one of them, if not the most stabilizing leg. And so because of those attributes, the negotiators, of the new star treaty said, well, we're just going to count bombers as one, even though you might be able to hang, a dozen of these nuclear weapons underneath that one bomber. Now, let's not make any mistake here. The Russians know this too, and they play this game very well. So, uh, so what we're doing is just trying to keep up. the The air launched cruise missile is uh, when it by twenty thirty will be some thirty seven years past its time, its original time design, 
and uh, and 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 these are basically one for one swaps. So uh, so again, we are not expanding. Uh, much to my chagrin, we are not expanding our nuclear arsenal in order to bring these online. But we are enhancing the capability with these stealthy little systems that will enable our pilots to maintain our aircrew to be safe and and from a standoff distance and be able to hold targets at risk that might be otherwise protected by intricate and and uh, and efficient. Uh, uh, A2AD or anti-access aero denial capabilities that will just put our aircraft and our pilots at risk. So now we'll be able to penetrate those. And if we can hold those targets at risk while minimizing our own risk, this enhances the deterrence credibility. This is incredibly important, Adam, to why this system needs to come online. Jim, so as you think about the the technical differences between the, you know, the AGM-86, the the air launch cruise missile and the new LRSO, which what is it? The AGM one thirty four, something like that. What is it? The one you remember the model number, Curtis, I, I'm, I I'm drawing a blank, but so for you, Jim is the technical guy. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what really impressed me when I read this article. Um, and I start looking at this as well as some of the other modernization efforts is we're starting to see a real change in the way that engineering and design are being done, they're being done in a very fluid fashion. We're not, we're, we're building, you know, for them to come in under budget and be able to meet the requirements, we're establishing requirements up front. I think the it shows that the community, the engineering community and the operational community are working together in this modernization, which if you would go back 10 or 15 years and talk to a lot of our leadership, that was a major problem. And that's not happening now. It's starting to get to the point where we're integrating the ideas, we're building the systems from an engineering standpoint, and we're designing as we go so we can opt to change things as we're moving so that we can be more efficient in that engineering aspect. And that that you can see and a lot of the design criteria, and I can't go into details about some of the things I know, um, obviously, in this podcast, but I can say that engineering change is dramatically uh, important as we look at our adversaries who are building up their forces to be able to be agile and be able to be realistic in the way in which we can get stuff to the ground. Imagine five years ago on an aircraft or whatever, and I won't mention any specific aircraft coming in under budget and going back to our leadership and saying, we can do it. What a, what a good strike for the, for the uh, military. I think, I think this is just an an incredible piece to push. It sort of gets buried in the article, but I pull that out real quickly because I see that as the hardest part as an engineer who always is, as I say, I'm cheap and lazy. So I want to do things you know, with less time, with less money. Okay. And so under budget, under time, that's what I want. Okay. So now, you know, my real background. I think that's, yeah, more, Curtis, about, what's that's more about being Jim than being an engineer, cheap and lazy. Um, no, it is the AGM 181 <laughs> folks, the 181. So Chris, let me ask you as somebody who was in Congress, whenever, you know, this, you know, this weapon was being funded, what was the take yeah on the side of, you know, Congress and the House 
the Hask, you know, what, where was everybody coming down in terms of, cause there was some di- yeah. discussion debate. Do we need, you know, there was, let's just have the subs. Let's have a monad. Let's get rid of the ICBMs. Let's not have LRSO. Maybe we'll have some gravity bombs and that's about it. So what was the debate like in terms of this? Well, it was actually quite fierce and, uh, and there's a couple reasons. Number one is unfortunately Nuclear deterrence isn't something that a lot of members of Congress think about very often any longer. I mean, really, there's a mind frame that that's, oh, so 1970s, so 1980s. You know, if you're going to talk nuclear deterrence, you better pull out a shag rug and lay on it to talk about it because it's just old, right? And uh, and many members of Congress thought we shouldn't be funding these efforts. We We just don't need to. What's the threat? Well, the good news on that is that many of them have now rethought their positions and they realized uh you know the war in ukraine which i want to make a comment on in just a moment but the war in ukraine obviously the middle east and neither of those are likely to to escalate to a nuclear conflict but you take the uncertainty that they demonstrate and combine that with the fact that china is absolutely preparing as a worst case scenario that they would have nuclear deterrence I mean, how aggressively they're moving and improving and and building what will be a world-class, the world's class nuclear deterrence force. Uh, I think that's changed a lot of people's minds in Congress. But, you know, if I could, Adam, I want to go back to something Curtis said that I just think is so important. And that's you talk about the stability and and the various options that this weapon platform provides. Uh, you know, I flew the B-1 very early in my career. We still had the nuclear mission. We sat on alert. Uh, it, it's it's really kind of, I don't know, It's it, it, I don't want to say I'm nerving, but it's kind of weird to sit in an aircraft that is fully loaded with a, with two bomb bays of nuclear weapons that, you know, the amount of destruction that they can cause is just unfathomable. It's, it's actually quite sobering. Uh, but to come back to Ukraine and tie two points together about Curtis's thing about how this is actually provides for stability because of the the real advantages that that aircraft and then this final tip of the spear with aircraft these these uh, nuclear tip cruise missiles provide versus say a submarine launched or uh, you know one of our traditional ICBMs which once you launch them there's no recall. But uh, imagine. Uh, a scenario, and and this is not, by the way, uh, it, it's not unimaginable. It, it it was there were times early in the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine when we actually thought that Vladimir Putin might use a tactical nuclear strike. Something once again that the, that the world would have, it would have changed the world had he done that. And and to to remind people that a tactical nuclear weapon may be actually a very small detonation. It may be as small as designed to take out a single bridge or a single building even, or perhaps a depot. But even though it wouldn't be as powerful as we've seen, obviously, over, over Nagasaki or, or Hiroshima, it still, as I said, changes the world. But here's here's what we are faced with and what Russia was betting. We have very limited ability to respond to that. Our ability to resp- respond to a tactical nuclear strike, other than with strategic strike, is very, very limited. And it actually creates great instability because what Vladimir Putin was betting had he had he decided to take that drastic step is that we would not respond or we would respond in a strategic way that was just an enormous over response. And then who knows what happens after that? 
And I think that's one of the great reasons and one of the great arguments why this weapon system is so important. It's new, it's upgraded, it's more reliable, it's coming in under budget, but it allows for more stability, more predictability, and for better options for our commanders than we presently have, which actually leads to uh, a more secure world and not a less secure world like, like we're living in now. Yeah, Chris, I have a question you might have an insight on that, that I don't. But again, I think of this from an engineering and development standpoint. I imagine it's also upgradable as well, a lot easier than previously. Is that true? Well, I'm not an expert on this system. I think I have reasonable knowledge on it. But what you said, Dr. Petrosky, is that's exactly right. That's one of the great advantages to it. And I think that's that's built into the design of all of our uh, weapon systems now that just wasn't available a generation ago. The ability to upgrade and, mm-hmm. and in pretty meaningful ways to change uh, and, and give you all sorts of options as you upgrade these weapon systems that just, again, wasn't available a generation ago when, when our current systems were designed. You built that weapon system and it just is what it is versus an F-35 now, which has enormous latitude in how you deploy it because of its ability to upgrade. And uh, these air-launched uh, missile systems would be much the same. You know, what? What one of the things that it, I think is, you know, one of the advantages of it is, you know, it's going to have the W-80-4 warhead on it. And previous iterations of the W-80 were... Uh, dialable yield warheads. You had a couple of yields that from, you know, a low yield to a sort of a yield similar to a Minuteman three. And it's, uh, it's good to have that flexibility for potential use so that you can select that yield for targets. Cause we do want, you know, when you mentioned, you know, this gap that we clearly have, cause the, the number of B 61 12s, that are going to, you know, soon be flown off of, off of F-35s, that's still a small number in Europe to serve as an effective deterrent. You know, it's some estimates say a hundred, somewhere between a hundred and 200. And, you know, that there's no real war plan for their use. There's, you know, the CISNO RISNO package that it takes to get to targets. So something like this has the ability to be an effective deterrent in a way that the DCA mission in Europe is not as effective. You know, this was the whole point of the uh, 76-2 low-yield warhead for the SLBMs. But the other thing I like about it is it could potentially serve as uh, what I am very excited about and hope to see one day soon, and that's uh, Glickum-2. Uh, I'm. I would like to see the ground launch cruise missile return to Europe, and potentially return to parts of Asia. And if you, you know, with the buy of these of over a thousand, that you could, eat, you know, before the before that uh, production rate is run, you could buy even more of them for greater utility. These are, you know, if you look at what the Russians have done, they've sold containerized uh, nuclear conventional and potentially nuclear capabilities. Well, the the LRSO could also be a containerized capability that you could launch. So it's a pretty versatile weapon that could put the scare back in American deterrence. And that's what I really like about it. 
Well, I mean, just to reemphasize the point that all of us feel deeply, and that is the entire purpose of these weapons is deterrence. I mean, God forbid any one of us that, that, that we'd see a world where any of these weapons were actually used. It, 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 our, our intention is that they never be used. But the only way that works is if deterrence is effective. And deterrence is, I think there's three elements to it. And this isn't, these aren't my words. This is, you know, well accepted. And, and other people would, would bore down uh, with greater detail than I'm able to. But deterrence is when you have the military capability, but you've got to have the national will to use that capability, and you've got to communicate that will. And I think us moving forward with this weapon does all of that. I promise you, China is closely monitoring uh, the development of this and other weapon systems. The fact that the American people aren't obstructing nor, nor opposing this is important to them as they watch this. And it signals to them that we are serious about our nuclear deterrence. We'll spend the money necessary to maintain our nuclear deterrence. This with the new GBSD is very important in that is signaling that deterrence. And then communicating that deterrence. This does all three of them, I think, in a, in a very effective way. And again, the point being is to deter aggression, to deter war, to save lives, uh, to create less chaos and more stability. Um, and... And I know a lot of people don't, or they're not comfortable with the idea of nuclear deterrence. But the reality is, is that is our world. It's been what has, you know, has been effective for going on two generations now. And, uh, and, and we just need to continue with a strategy that has been as effective as it has to date. Yeah, I want to piggyback on, on Chris's idea here about the impact on deterrence and stability with this weapon system. It, again, I want to remind the audience that the air-launched cruise missile has existed since the early 80s. It still exists today. It's The LRSO is, is, is no more destabilizing than that would be, if that's your mindset. And I would argue that it is, it is more stabilizing uh, because of its capability uh, being enhanced, uh, the, its credibility uh, in this new world um, in, in, will enhance its survivability and, and its potential usability. Now, that doesn't mean that these weapons are meant to be used. It just, in, in a sense of employment, it, what I'm saying is, is that these weapons need to be used for deployment, for the purposes of deterrence. And, uh, but if you, if you don't have them, you can't deter. And this idea that having these kinds of systems, in fact, lower the threshold for potential use is a red herring. What it is by not having these weapons that, and the adversary who does have them changes the threshold of potential use, as Chris has mentioned already, in that if you if the adversary has the capability and doesn't believe you do, then they feel like they have that room to maneuver. Because if your only response is a strategic response, that is not that is not a response. That is escalation. And so the adversary is betting on the idea that we will be more fearful of escalating than we will be of not retaliating. And that's what we have to overcome. We cannot push ourselves in a situation where the president does not have the options needed to to. Uh, play the brinksmanship game that needs to be played in order to ensure the peace. So not having these systems is more destabilizing than having them at all. 
and, and let me add one last thing before I give this back to you, Adam, and that is if these systems were really destabilizing, then why didn't we pursue eliminating them in the New Star Treaty? Why is it okay that the Russians have these and the Chinese have these systems? And somehow that's not destabilizing. But if we have these systems, it is. And I would argue that that is simply not the case. That is a blame America first sort of mentality, uh, throwback to the 80s. And, um, and I would say that the most dangerous thing for the world is for us to not have this ability to match the adversary in that uh, weapons class in that threshold. Jim, I think you had something you wanted to add as well. Well, the, the only thing I want to add is that it, it also, and I'm, I'm just sort of piggybacking on the comments I made two episodes ago. And that is, it also shows that we're willing to put the national effort in maintaining our capability of our workforce and our people and our scientific community and our education, et cetera, to support the concept of a nuclear deterrent. And so it's, it's got long, you know, far reaching, uh, um, effect on what our adversaries will see. And you start to think, you know, if you, I always ask people when they, they ask me questions, you know, if you could go back 20 years, what would you do to stop where we are now? And people tell me what they do. And I say, well, let's do it now. Well, we can't. Well, somewhere you got to start. And I think this is all good information. You know, this is good that we are getting our eyes open to what's going on. And now for our cast, and hopefully our listeners will hear this and talk to their friends and family members and say, there is deterrence value because I would rather have peace than war. And if this provides peace and stability, then I am for it, and that's valuable to us. Now you can get on board. Back to you, Adam. So let's uh, take a ride in the Wayback Machine to 1983 when the air launch cruise missile was, you know, first fielded. So it's it's now 40 years old. It's part of Gen Y, uh, for those of you that keep up with that. Now, 1983, what happened? Well, the first time in 23 years, OPEC cut oil prices. That was one of the things that happened in 1983. 1983, President Ronald Reagan proposed the Star Wars missile defense system. Uh, So that was a big event. In 1983, uh, my favorite meat, that would be bacon, was sold for 99 cents a pound. And Pepsi was 89 cents for a two-liter bottle. And uh, MASH, most people don't even know what MASH is, but MASH ended its 11-year run on television. And the most popular TV show that year was a TV show called Cheers. I think maybe a few of you uh, have heard of it. And then finally, in the world... We passed the 10 million mark for the number of computers sold was in 1983. So this that's how old the air launch cruise missile is. And that's the era of the technology. Uh, and I remember the computers I had. My first computer was 1986. And I remember that computer. So if you think about the technology, so these are fielded in 83 with technology that was designed in the early 70s. So 
you know, that whenever they were designing that air launch cruise missile, they were listening to eight track tapes, not even cassettes. And so that's, that's where we are. So when you field LRSO, you know, that's like, you know, a man who rode a horse getting to drive a Tesla. That's sort of the, the, the difference because it's just that big a difference in technological advancement from that period it was designed because now they're designing these, these weapons in much shorter timeframes and then, and their spiral developed. It's, it's just amazing. The different, the software iterations that are in them. It's amazing. Jim, I think you had to, yeah, something to say. Yeah, the modular design. There's so many things. No, Adam, I just wanted to tell you that I heard our audience all over the world take a deep breath when you said Wayback Machine because we all thought you were going to give another Saturday Night Live uh, <laughs> comment there. So thank you for, for pulling us back to the subject. Uh, well, you know. Let me let me add to this for a moment because 1983 was an interesting year. Besides having the release of Judas Priest's "Screaming for Vengeance" album, um, you had uh, the Korean airliner shootdown. You had the deployment of Glickum and Pershing II, which led to the INF Treaty several years later. Um, you had. Um, um, uh, a, a number of different things. We also had what the Beirut, that's right. The Marine barracks and Grenada invasion. Uh, we had uh, Able Archer uh, and, uh, and these kinds of things that were going on. <clears throat> the, uh, the great, the, you know, the, 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 the life changing movie of the day after, uh, you know, the nuclear uh, detonations in, in Lawrence, Kansas, and what that life was like. By the way, that movie shaped, you know, Ronald Reagan's perception um, for the rest of his presidency uh, on what he wanted to do with nuclear weapons. But again, uh, I was, uh, you know, I had an Apple II Plus and an 8-track player in, uh, in 1983. So I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. And I'm not even that old. I think I was a freshman that year in high school. So, um, so that is, uh, that is, a, is a great way to, uh, to realize just how much the technology has changed, but we, but we, we, you know, and we keep resisting, uh, you know, these ideas that we need to modernize these things. I never can understand why we as Americans are content with placing the most dangerous weapons in the world on top of old jalopies, right? Why, why, why would we not want to have them in the most, uh, advanced, uh, safe and secure capabilities uh, that we could that we could ever uh, you know produce, um, but you know again it was just recently we got rid of the nine inch floppy disks and the ICBM silo. So uh, you know there's a certain amount of uh, security in, in in an analog watch. Well, and as well, not only are you putting them on top of jalopies, but you're putting them on top of jalopies that you can't drive, you you can't test them, you can't even go out and start them. So, you know, you do extraordinary or find or, spare yeah. parts for them. Yeah. I mean, you do extraordinary computer modeling to say, yeah, we think that, that, that they're going to work and these are the problems we expect. But, but again, it, they're weapon systems that are older than most of us and older than most Americans. And, and there's no way to affirm that they will do what they, what we need them to do. And, and, and one other comment really quickly, and that is Ronald Reagan. I mean, uh, he he was under severe political pressure, severe pressure from with uh, from within his nation and from Europe, and from our European allies for some of the positions he took on moder modernizing the Department of Defense at the time. 
And yet he stood strong. And it's, it was incredibly important that he did. And the outcome was incredibly positive. When you see what happened near the end of his presidency and the beginning of George Bush's presidency, where the entire world changed when the former Soviet Union said, you know, we can't compete with you any longer. And what would everyone had expected to be a totalitarian uh, fascist regime fell really overnight in ways that, again, most of us just didn't expect. But a, a real large part of that is because of Ronald Reagan and the strength that he showed in deterrence, including nuclear deterrence, with the help of some of his key allies, Margaret Thatcher, and and in a different way as well, Pope John Paul, who was who stood strong with those two other other national leaders. Yep, agreed completely. So so let me let me uh, take the reins here, Adam, and ask you all a question. So in this article, is a thousand enough? I mean, the, you know, the decision to buy a thousand was made probably six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, the world has changed. Is a thousand enough? So I would submit that it's, you know, probably not. And that you need to be thinking about ways. So building new weapons is, is a challenge, but thinking about innovative ways to deploy weapons is much easier. And so for me, LRSO deployment through Glickum, through containerized delivery, shipboard delivery, you know, all sorts of ways, you know, you could deliver the the weapon is, is worth the effort. And this is a good weapon to do it. It's a pretty good one to do it. It's easier than a, a B-6112. It's, you know, it's, it can fly in difficult places that a F-35 can't, it doesn't need the support package that an F-35 does. So it's just has a lot of utility and in particular, and this is where I'll stop, let's not forget that Vladimir Putin, I, I guess it was la maybe last week, formally withdrew from the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. And so we have a, a you know, a growing threat, or at least, you know, Vladimir Putin's trying to signal a threat uh, in a creative way by withdrawing. And whether he actually tests and whether, you know, this begins to escalate further, we don't know. But if we are more capable with more ability to deliver and hold at risk, then we're better off. Yeah, so I, I think they just uh, sort of unratified, but they're still signatories. Uh, but but yes, but that's their intent, and, I, and I'm tracking along here. Jim, what do you think? And then, Chris, I'll come to you last. Is a 1,000 so, enough? You know, I'm going to punt on this in, in the same way I've punted before, and that is that, you know, more capability is obviously important. So more is more, and unfortunately, you know, the, the answer I've always given for nuclear weapons, how many do we need? Well, if you look at the cold, if, if you look at the Cold War, we obviously had enough because we didn't have a nuclear war. So I'd say, yeah, that worked. So the number then was good looking back. Looking forward, I'm not sure, but we can look at the past to say what we had was valuable. Now, let me go one more step because nuclear weapons, this is a new capability we're putting on. And what I, what I will say is uh, it may be enough if we can also build our other capabilities in a way that they are supportive and give enough strategic advantage to bring that fear about in our, in our adversaries. And so the strategy and the policy and the strategic messaging, just like Putin is giving us with this 
pulling out of the test ban treaty by the way, or at least uh, de-ratifying or whatever you said. Um, you know, remember we did testing before and yet it never led to nuclear war, by the way. Um, so I would say that, you know, before you hair on fire, we would say, maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe we should go ahead and test quickly too while we're doing this and say, we got some strategic messaging for you. Um, and these weapons uh, provide that opportunity for us to get the upper hand or potentially get the upper hand. So what's the number? Well, I'd say it's somewhere between what it used to be and infinity. I'll stand on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's a punt. So yes, uh, to your point, uh, the number that that worked in the Cold War was also supplemented by a lot of other capabilities that we don't have anymore. So Chris, let me ask you, is a thousand enough in today's world and tomorrow's world? Well, you know, I may... I may differ slightly uh, with some of you, although maybe not, because I don't think any one of us has said, you know, just unequivocally, it's it's either not enough or it is. Um, And I I want to emphasize something that Jim said earlier, and that is the question is, does it strike fear and and respect into the into the hearts and minds of our adversaries? I think it probably does. Um, And the second thing is this when when we were funding this program in Congress, we really didn't ask the question, how much money do we have? We really did ask the question, how many do we need? And in that moment, it was, you know, several years ago, but in that moment, I felt comfortable that a thousand was probably sufficient. However, having said that, the one thing I think that we should, uh, we should consider is as these weapons are coming online, and there's a there's a set production rate every year that's probably not going to change. And so it gives us a little time to reflect on this. And before we shut down that production line, I think it's a fair question to ask. Is this final number that we have here or that we're approaching that number, is it sufficient? And should we keep the production line going? So um, that number could change. The final answer may change. I think we've got a few years to consider it. But in the meanwhile, just very glad that the program has gone forward as it has to this point. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. So in a, in, in a, you know, in honor of the late John McLaughlin, I'll say uh, – uh, you're all wrong. The answer is we need more. I'm just kidding. Yeah, we need. I more. was in more. Infinity is more. Is it? But Infinity but is it the true answer? I'm just not sure. It's a real number. So uh, anyway, over to you, Adam. But I, wrapping what, us wasn't up. the wasn't the actual answer to the question of you know the what was it the eternal question or the question of life or whatever? Wasn't it like 47? From yeah, uh, that's right. From, 49. Yeah. yeah. Hitchhiker's so, well, Guide to the Galaxy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we've discussed the the idea of a 1,000 LRSO, and I guess for what it's worth, we had our thoughts on it. Uh, thanks for joining us, Chris. And, and what life was like in 1983. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So thanks for joining us, Chris. Same to you, Curtis, Jim. And thanks to you, the listeners, as always, for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear View. And as always, we want to encourage you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. 
we occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.